In this unit, you're going to be looking at bias and assumption in research. The texts you will examine are an article called The Order of Things, What College Rankings Really Tell Us, and then another one on women's brains. The important thing that I want you to make sure you're keeping in mind before you ever begin reading either one of these texts is the assignment that you're going to have at the end. Here's the assignment. When you graduate, well, and even before then, you're going to see research. And people are going to be arguing important issues. And they're going to be listing findings and research and references to research reports. You've got to learn about what is important to do as a thinker whenever you're reading and weighing and considering these research articles. So I want you to think about, as we get into this Gladwell and Gould text, that you reference and think about the big ideas that are in both of the texts, the arguments they make and how they make them, and the specific moments in the text that help you understand how you make these decisions as a thinker. The first text we're going to dig into is one by Malcolm Gladwell. He's the author of five nonfiction books, which have all appeared in the New York Times bestseller lists, including The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. Um, I've read all of these, and he's just an amazing article. He writes with such common sense, and uh, it's, it's really kind of fun to follow his line of thinking. He has been writing articles for The New Yorker since 1996. Mr. Gladwell is popular for uncovering intriguing patterns that are seldom noticed or considered. Examples of his arguments include that one is more likely to be an elite hockey player if one is born during the first half of the year, and that being a good airline pilot has a lot to do with where the pilot is from. I think a lot of us don't want to believe those things. He is interested in what actions can should be taken as a result of understanding these hidden dimensions of everyday phenomena. One of his talents as a nonfiction writer is his ability to be intellectual while keeping the reader engaged and continually surprised. See if you feel the same as I do about him. All right, we're beginning the order of things, what college rankings really tell us. By Malcolm Gladwell. Last summer, the editors of Car and Driver conducted a comparison test of three sports cars, the Lotus Evora, the Chevrolet Corvette Grand Sport, and the Porsche Cayman S. Now, I'm going to stop and pause here for just a minute to point out something. It mentions the editors of Car and Driver. One of the things that's going to be really important for you to do as someone who is a thinker and a decider about buying cars is to pay attention to who's making those claims and those research, uh, those references about the research. Car and driver is generally a reliable and respected source. So uh, sometimes what you're going to have to be doing is re-entering and just stopping um, the work for a a bit to go figure out if this source is one that is really something that should be respected. So let's re-enter the text now. The cars were taken on an extended run through mountain passes in Southern California and from there to a racetrack north of Los Angeles for precise measurements of performance and handling. Now Gladwell does something really important right here is he gives you context of how the research was conducted. If something like that is missing in something that you're reading, that's kind of one of those red flags that you need to go find out what the context of it was. The results of the road tests were then tabulated according to a 21-variable, 235-point rating system based on four categories. Vehicle, driver, comfort, styling, fit and finish, etc. Power, train, transmission, engine, and fuel economy chassis, 
steering, brakes, ride, and handling, and fun to drive. So I'm going to pause again and point out something that you need to pay attention to when you're referencing research. Did you notice how much was collected, the variables? The more variables, the more complex it is. And then the more things or people that were measured, the more likely you are or participants, the more valid the research is as well. The magazine concluded, and he quotes directly from the source. The range of these three cars' driving personalities is as various as pajama sizes of Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and Baby Bear, but a clear winner emerged nonetheless. This was the final tally. Number one, the Porsche Cayman had 193 points. Coming in second, the Chevrolet Corvette with quite a few lesser points, 186. And number three, the Lotus Evora with 182 points. But again, that's still quite up there with it was a 235 point rating system. So there's all of them are still pretty high up there. Car and Driver is one of the most influential editorial voices in the automotive world. When it says that it likes one car better than another, consumers and car makers take notice. Yet, when you inspect the magazine's tabulations, it's hard to figure out why Car and Driver was so sure that the Cayman is better than the Corvette and the Evora. Now, Gladwell, again, is pointing out something that you really need to think about whenever you're looking at research. He's saying, let's question it. They're saying this as an assertion, but how did they make that decision? And so he says on line 30, the trouble starts with the fact that the ranking methodology car and driver used was essentially the same one it uses for all of the vehicles it tests, from SUVs to economy sedans. It's not set up for sports cars. Exterior styling, for example, counts 4% of the total score. Has anyone buying a sports car ever placed so little value on how it looks? See, that's what we need to do when we're reading research. We need to question it and think about it in terms of our own experiences as well. Similarly, the categories of fun to drive and chassis, which cover the subjective experience of driving the car, count for only 85 points out of the total 235. That may make sense for SUV buyers, but... For people interested in Porsches and Corvettes and Lotuses, the subjective experience of driving is surely what matters most. In other words, trying to come up with a rating, ranking that is heterogeneous, a methodology that is broad enough to cover all vehicles, car and driver ended up with a system that is absurdly ill-suited to some vehicles, which again... <laughs> tells you that something that's really important for you to do is think about what scale and how does that resonate with your own needs and beliefs, especially in terms of comparing it with the other things that it could measure. Suppose that car and driver decided to tailor its grading system just to sports cars. Clearly, styling and the driving experience ought to count for much more. So let's make exterior styling worth 25%, the driving experience worth 50%, and the balance of the criteria worth 25%. The final tally now looks like this. The Lotus Evora comes in at a 205-point range for number one, the Porsche Cayman, 198, the Chevrolet Corvette, 192, almost exactly opposite of what we had seen before. I think also one of the things and moves that I see Gaiman making in this text is that he's posing a what-if, a hypothetical, 
And as you question and push against research and findings, asking those what ifs is often a good strategy to think about seeing it in a new way. There's another funny thing about car and driver system. Price counts only for 20 points, less than 10% of the total. There's no secret why. Car and driver is edited by auto enthusiasts. So again, you've got to think also about who the audience is, not the audience, who the author is. What is their um, trend toward bias? What things do they value? And as such, this makes a really good point that, you've, that helps you see how they're viewing it. Maybe that might not be in line with the way you believe them. To them, the choice of car is as important as the choice of a home or a spouse, and only a Philistine would let a few dollars stand between him and the car he wants. The rest of us don't have that luxury. They leave penny-pinching to their frumpy counterparts at Consumer Reports. <laughs> but most, to most of us, price matters, especially in the case where the Corvette as tested, cost $67,565, $13,000 less than the Porsche, and $18,000 less than the Lotus. Even to a car nut, that is a lot of money. So let's imagine that car and driver revised its ranking system again. So yet again, he's posing another what if based on different values giving a third of the weight to price, a third to driving experience, and a third split equally between exterior styling and vehicle characteristics. The tally would now be number one, Chevrolet Corvette with 205, Lotus Evora 195, and an equal portion for the Porsche Cayman at 195. So which is the best car? Car and driver's ambition to grade every car in the world according to the same methodology would be fine if it limited itself to a single dimension. A heterogeneous ranking system works if it focuses on just on, say, how much fun a car is to drive, or how good looking it is, or how beautifully it handles. The magazine's ambition to create a comprehensive rating system one that considered cars along 21 variables, each weighted according to secret sauce cooked up by the editors, would also be fine, as long as the cars being compared were truly similar. It's a really important point. It's only when one car is $13,000 more than another that juggling 21 variables starts to break down, because you're faced with the impossible task of deciding how much of a difference that total degree ought to matter. A ranking can be heterogeneous, in other words, as long as it doesn't try to be too comprehensive. And it has to be comprehensive. It can be comprehensive as long as it doesn't try to measure things that are heterogeneous. But it's an act of real audacity when a ranking system tries to be comprehensive and heterogeneous which is the first thing to keep in mind in my consideration of U.S. News and World Report's annual Best Colleges Guide. So this whole thing has served as an introduction to some basic concepts we need to keep in mind as we consider the bulk and main part of the thesis that he begins to give us about what college rankings really tell us. So now that he has given us some basic things to think about in terms of how we make decisions about reports and how we should push against them and think about really what's being measured, how it's being done, etc. He's going to go deeper into uh, the college reports. I'm on page nine, just after the three asterisks. The U.S. News rankings are run by Robert Morse whose six-person team operates out of a small red brick office building in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Morse is a middle-aged man with gray hair who looks like the prototypical Beltway wonk, rumpled, self-effacing, mildly preppy, and simply sensibly shooed. 
His office is piled high with this statistical detrius of more than two decades of data collection. When he took on his current job in the mid-1980s, the college guide was little more than an item of service journalism tucked away inside U.S. News Magazine. Now, the weekly print magazine is defunct, but the rankings have taken on a life of their own. In the month that the 20, 2011 rankings came out, the U.S. News website recorded more than 10 million visitors. U.S. News has added rankings of graduate programs, law schools, business schools, medical schools, and hospitals, and Morse has become the dean of a burgeoning international rankings industry. In the early years, the thing that's happening now would not have been imaginable, Morse says. Morse says, this idea of using the rankings as a benchmark, college presidents setting a goal of we're going to rise in the U.S. news ranking as proof of their management or as proof that they're a better school, that they're a good president, that wasn't on anybody's radar. It was just for consumers. Over the years, Morse methodology has steadily evolved. In its current form, it relies on seven weighted variables. And I'm thinking, let's go back and reread on page nine. He says that you have to be careful when a system tries to be comprehensive and heterogeneous. And so I begin to question and think, are the universities and programs similar enough to be measured by this rubric, so to say? So here are their weighted variables. All right, so the first one is undergraduate academic reputation is 22.5%. The second one is graduate and freshman retention rates, 20%. Faculty resources, 20. Student selectivity, 15. Financial resources, 10. Graduation rate performance, 7.5. And that makes me just a little bit concerned there. To me, that would be the most important thing to see how successful their people are. Alumni giving, 5%. From these variables, I just have to stop and say, it makes me rethink what, I think about the highly rated ones. I mean, it's really not important to me about how much their alumni give. I want to know if that is a place where students can be successful. Interesting. From these variables, U.S. News generates a score for insti each institution based on a scale of 1 to 100, where Harvard is a 100, and the University of Carolina Greensboro is a 22. Here's a list of the schools that finished in positions 41 through 50 in the 20, 2011 National University category. Okay, so they're all national universities. But it's interesting that he's pulled out of the very middle of the data set. So these are some of them that I've, I've never seen and some of them that I know. So we have Case Western Reserve at 60, um, number 41, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute at 60. Two more are at 60, the University of California and the University of Washington. Both scoring 59 points is our state's University of Texas in Austin, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Then three of them have a score of 58. Penn State University, University Park, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I've actually been there. University of Miami. And then the last one seems like a Jewish name, 57 at number 50, like in the snapdad middle of all of it, Yeshiva University. This ranking system looks a great deal like the car and driver methodology. It is heterogeneous. 
it doesn't just compare UC Irvine, the University of Washington, the University of Texas, Austin, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Penn State, and the University, he goes on for a long time, all public institutions of roughly the same size. It aims to compare Penn State, a very large public land-grant university with low tuition and an economically diverse student body set in a rural valley in central Pennsylvania and famous for its football team with Yeshiva University, a small, expensive, private Jewish university whose undergraduate program is set on two campuses in Manhattan, one in Midtown for the women and one in Uptown for the men, and is definitely not famous for its football team. The system is also comprehensive. It doesn't simply compare the schools along one dimension, the test scores of incoming freshmen, say, or academic reputation. An algorithm takes a slate of statistics on each college and transforms them into a single score. It tells us that Penn State is a better school than Yeshiva by one point. It's easy to see why the U.S. news rankings are so popular. A single score allows us to judge between entities like Yeshiva and Penn State that otherwise would be impossible to compare. At no point, however, do the college guides acknowledge the extraordinarily difficulty of the task they have set themselves, a comprehensive, heterogeneous ranking system was a stretch for car and driver, and all it did was rank inanimate objects operated by a single person. The Penn State campus at University Park is a complex institution with dozens of schools and departments, 4,000 faculty members, and 45,000 students. How on earth does anyone propose to assign a number to something like that? Sounds pretty ridiculous to me when he puts it this way. So now that he has given us this examination of the middle of the college rankings, we're as ready with this next section to dive into something else about why this is so difficult. The first difficulty with rankings is that it can be surprisingly hard to measure the variable you want to rank even in cases where that variable seems perfectly objective. Consider an extreme example, suicide. Here is a ranking of suicide per 100,000 people by country. Belarus is number one at 35 to one. So for every one per 35 people, one of them will commit suicide. Lithuania, 31.5 to five. Oh, is it point? Here is a ranking system of suicides per 100,000 people by country. Okay, so it's not a ratio. Belarus, 35.1. Lithuania, 31.5. South Korea, 31.0. Kazakhstan, 26.9. Russia is so number five at 26.5. Japan, 24.4. Guyana, 22.9. Ukraine. 22.6, Hungary, 21.8, and number 10, Sri Lanka, 21.6. This list looks straightforward, yet no self-respecting epidemiologist would look at it and conclude that Belarus has the worst suicide rate in the world and that Hungary belongs in the top 10. <laughs> Measuring suicide is just too tricky. It requires someone to make a surmise about the intentions of the deceased at the time of death. In some cases, that's easy. Maybe the victim jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge or left a note. In most cases, though, there's ambiguity and different corners and different cultures vary widely in the way they choose to interpret that ambiguity. So, Pausing again to think about your purpose, you're supposed to be thinking about as an adult thinker and a decider, what are you going to do when people report things? And at first, it looks like this pretty straightforward with the suicide rates. 
but you got to look deeper and dig into the cultures and attitudes and the different people who are in charge that would create variables that aren't included in that percentage that was reported. In certain places, cause of death is determined by the police, who some believe are more likely to call an ambiguous suicide an accident. In other places, the decision is made by a physician who may be less likely to do so. In some cultures, suicide is considered so shameful that coroners shy away from that determination, even when it's obvious. So you really got to think about the human factor here and how all of that really is a part of what's underneath the statistics that may skew them in a way you didn't expect. A suicide may be called a suicide, a homicide, an accident, or left undetermined. David Phillips, a sociologist at the University of California, San Diego, has argued persuasively that a significant percentage of single car crashes are probably suicides. And criminologists suggest that a good percentage of civilians killed by police officers are actually cases of suicide by cop. Instances where someone deliberately provoked deadly force. The reported suicide rate then is almost certainly less than the actual suicide rate. But no one knows whether the relationship between those numbers is the same in every country. And no one knows whether the proxies that we use to estimate the real suicide rate are any good. Many, many people who commit suicide by poison have something else wrong with them. Let's say the person has cancer and the death of that person might be listed as primarily associated with cancer rather than the deliberate poisoning, Philip says. Any suicides in that category would be undetectable or it is frequently noted that Orthodox Jews have a low recorded suicide rate, as do Catholics. Well, it could be because they have this very solid community and proscriptions against suicide, or because they are unusually embarrassed by suicide and were willing to hide it. The simple answer is that nobody knows whether suicide rankings are real. The U.S. news rankings suffer from a serious case of the suicide problem. There's no direct way to measure the quality of an institution, how well a college manages to inform, inspire, and challenge its students. So the U.S. news algorithm relies instead on proxies for quality. And the proxies for educational quality turn out to be flimsy at best. So now he's going to take us through an examination of these categories. Are they really the kinds of things that measure what it says that they're measuring, the quality of the university? <laughs> take the category of faculty resources, which counts for 20% of an institution's score. Research shows that the more satisfied students are about their contact with professors, the college guide's explanation of the category begins, the more they will learn and the more likely it is that they will graduate. That's true. According to educational researchers, arguably the most important variable in a successful college education is a vague but crucial concept called student engagement. That is, the extent to which students immerse themselves in the intellectual and social life of their college. And a major component of engagement is the quality of a student's contacts with faculty. As with suicide, the disagreement isn't about what we want to measure. So what proxies does the U.S. News use to measure this elusive dimension of engagement? The explanation goes on. So I hope what you're learning here is you have to look and really study at what is inside of the research and what's behind those numbers to make a really good decision. So this next part is just a, a section in lines 295 through 210, 310, about um, what is inside that measurement that the guide reports. They say, we use six factors from the 
2009-10 academic year to assess the school's commitment to instruction. Class size has two components. The proportion of classes with fewer than 20 students, 30% of the faculty resources score, and the proportion with 50 or more students, 10% of the score. Faculty salary is 35%, is the average faculty pay plus benefits during the 2008-2009 and 2009-2010 academic years, adjusted for regional differences in the cost of living. Okay, so again, what we're trying to do here is measure the quality of the university, right? And the, and, and the engagement the student has, and they're using how much a professor makes to determine that. Seems like a questionable connection at best. We also weigh the proportion of professors with the highest degree in their fields, 15%, the student-faculty ratio, 5%, and the proportion of faculty who are full-time. This is a puzzling list. Do professors who get paid more money really take their teaching roles more seriously? And why does it matter whether the professor has the highest degree in his or her field? Salaries and degree attainment are known to be predictors of research productivity, but studies show that being oriented toward research has very little to do with being good at teaching. Almost none of the U.S. news variables, in fact, seem to be particularly effective proxies for engagement. As the educational researchers Patrick Terenzini and Ernest Pascarella concluded after analyzing 2,600 reports on the effect of college on students, and here's what they say. After taking into account the characteristics, abilities, and backgrounds students bring with them to college, we found out how much students grow or change has only inconsistent and perhaps, in a practical sense, trivial relationships with such traditional measures of institutional quality as educational expenditures per student, student-faculty ratios, faculty salaries, percentage of faculty with the highest degree in their field, faculty research on productivity, size of the library, or admissions selectivity. So again, I think another component comes out with this. Gladwell has found other research that contradicts and invalidates, in fact, the proxies that are used for those college rankings. So it's going to be important for you to not just listen to the research itself, but listen to what other research studies either confirm or contradict what those are. So you've got to reason through, does it measure what it say it's measuring? And you've got to look and continue researching other components as well. The reputation score that serves as the most important variable in the U.S. news methodology, accounting for 22.5% of a college's final score, isn't any better. Every year, the magazine sends a survey to the country's university and college presidents, provosts, and admissions deans, along with a sampling of high school guidance counselors, asking them to grade all the schools in their category on a scale of one to five. Okay, guys, they're asking the people who are working at these places to rank themselves. Those at national universities, for example, are asked to rank all 261 other national universities. And Morse says that the typical respondent grades about half of the schools in his or her category. But that's far from clear how any one individual could have insight into that many institutions. In an article published recently in the Annals of Internal Medicine, Ashwini Seth Gull analyzed U.S. News Best Hospitals rankings, which they also rely heavily on reputation ratings generated by professional peers. Seagal put together a list of objective criteria of performance, such as a hospital's mortality rates for various surgical procedures, patient safety rates, 
nursing staffing levels, and key technologies. Those sound like good measurement tools. Then he checked to see how well those measures of performance matched each hospital's reputation rating. The answer, he discovered, was that they didn't. An important thing that Gladwell has done here is he's looked at how this was applied in another situation, and it makes a lot of sense that this other research confirms that the reputation rating really doesn't have a lot to do with the quality. Having good outcomes doesn't translate into being admired by other doctors. Why, after all, should a gastroenterologist at the Oshner Medical Center in New Orleans have any specific insight into the performance of the gastroenterology department at Mass General in Boston? Or even, for that matter, have anything more than an anecdotal impression of the gastroenterology department down the road at some hospital in Baton Rouge? Some years ago, similarly, a former chief justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, Thomas Brennan, sent a questionnaire to a hundred or so of his fellow lawyers, asking them to rank a list of 10 law schools in order of quality. This included a good sample of the big names, Harvard, Yale, University of Michigan, and some lesser-known schools, John Marshall, Thomas Cooley. Brennan wrote, As I recall, they ranked Penn State's law school right about the middle of the pack, maybe fifth among the 10 schools listed. Of course, Penn State doesn't have a law school. Those lawyers put Penn State in the middle of the pack, even though the very fact they thought they knew about Penn State Law School was an illusion, because in their minds, Penn State is a middle-of-the-pack brand. Penn State does have a law school today, by the way. Sound judgments of educational quality have to be based on specific, hard-to-observe features, but reputational ratings are simply inferences from broad, readily observable features of an institution's identity, such as its history, its prominence in the media, or the elegance of its architecture. They are prejudices. Well, I think that that's something that Gladwell does as well that you should learn to do, is learn to name what it is that these conclusions are doing. And in this instance, the decisions that were made, the rankings, were really based on somebody's prejudices, their opinions, their observations that really had nothing to do with quality. And where do these kinds of reputational prejudices come from? According to Michael Bastedo, an educational psychologist at the University of Michigan, who has published widely in on the U.S. news methodologies, rankings drive reputation. Okay, so that's kind of creepy. They're guided on the perception, graded on the perception of their reputation, but people get their opinions based on the rankings. In other words, when the U.S. News asks a university president to perform the impossible task of assessing the relative merits of dozens of institutions he knows nothing about, he relies on the only source of detailed information at his disposal that assesses the relative merits of dozens of institutions he knows nothing about, the U.S. News. A school like Penn State, then, can do little to improve its position. To go higher than 47th, it needs to be a better reputation score. And to get a better reputation score, it needs to be higher than 47th. I think that's what they call a double bind. It's not bind. It's, it's never going to happen. The U.S. news ratings are a self-fulfilling prophecy. Bastetto, incidentally, says that reputation ratings can sometimes work very well. It makes sense, for example, to ask professors within a field to rate others in their field, 
they read one another's work, attend the same conferences, and hire one another's graduate students. So they have real knowledge on which to base their opinion. Reputation scores can work for one-dimensional rankings created by people with specialized knowledge. For instance, the Wall Street Journal has ranked colleges according to the opinions of corporate recruiters. Those opinions are more than a proxy. To the extent that people choose one college over another to enhance their prospects in the corporate job markets, the reputation marker ratings of corporate recruiters are of direct relevance. The number one school in the Wall Street Journal's corporate recruiters ranking, by the way, is Penn State. For several years, Jeffrey Stake, a professor at the Indiana University Law School, has run a website called The Ranking Game. It contains a spreadsheet loaded with statistics on every law school in the country and allows users to pick their own criteria, assign their own weights, and construct any ranking system they want. Stake's intention is to demonstrate just how subjective ratings rankings are, to show how determinations of quality turn on relatively arbitrary judgments about how much different variables should be weighted. For example, his site makes it easy to mimic the U.S. news rankings. All you have to do is give equal weight to academic reputation, LSAT scores at the 75th percentile, student-faculty ratio, and faculty law review publishing, and you get a list of elite schools which look similar to the U.S. News Law School rankings. Chicago, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Columbia, Northwestern, Cornell, University of Pennsylvania, New York University, University of California, Berkeley. Hmm. There's something missing from that list of variables, of course. It doesn't include price. That is one of the most distinctive features of the new U.S. news methodology. Both its college rankings and its law school rankings reward schools for devoting lots of financial resources to educating their students, but not for being affordable. Why? Morris admitted that there was no formal reason for that position. It was just a feeling. We're not saying that we're measuring ed educational outcomes, he explained, which seems so silly to me. Isn't that what a quality university would be is educational outcomes. This just seems ludicrous. We're not saying we're social scientists or we're subjecting our rankings to some peer review process. We're just saying we've made this judgment. We're saying we've interviewed and a lot of experts. We've developed these academic indicators and we think these measures measure quality schools. Hmm. As answers go, that's up there with the parental because I said so. But Morse is simply being honest. If we don't understand what the right proxies for college are, let alone how to represent those proxies in a comprehensive heterogeneous grading system, then our rankings are inherently arbitrary. All Morse was saying was that on the question of price, he comes down on the car and driver side of things not on the consumer reports side. U.S. News thinks that schools that spend a lot of money on their students are nicer than those who don't, and that this niceness ought to be factored into the equation of desirability. Plenty of Americans agree. The campus of Vanderbilt University or Williams College is filled with students whose families are largely indifferent to the price their school charges, but keenly interested in the flower beds and the spacious suites and the architecturally distinguished lecture halls those high prices make possible. Of course, given that the rising cost of college has become a significant social problem in the United States in recent years, you can make a strong case that a school ought to be rewarded for being affordable. So suppose we go back to the state's ranking game and re-rank law schools based on student-faculty ratio, LSAT scores at the 75th percentile, faculty publishing, and price, all weighted equally. 
the list now looks like this. University of Chicago, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Northwestern, Brigham Young, Cornell, University of Colorado, University of Pennsylvania, and Columbia University at number 10. The revised ranking tells us that there are schools like BYU in Colorado that provide good legal education as a decent price, and that by choosing not to include tuition as a variable, U.S. News has effectively penalized those schools for trying to provide value for the tuition dollar. But that's a very subtle tweak. Let's say the value for the dollar is something we really care about. And so what we want is a three-factor ranking, counting value for the dollar at 40%, LSAT scores at 40% of the total, and faculty publishing at 20%. Look at how the top 10 changes. University of Chicago, Brigham Young, Harvard, Yale, University of Texas, University of Virginia, University of Colorado, Alabama, Stanford, and University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the big time, Alabama. The U.S. News rankings turn out to be full of these kinds of implicit ideological choices. And so that's one thing you need to be thinking about is, do you know what the ideological choices were in the study and what's behind the rankings? And do they match with your needs and values? One common statistic used to evaluate college, for example, is called graduation and rate performance which compares a school's actual graduation rate with the predicted graduation rate given the socioeconomic status and the test scores of its incoming freshman class. It's a measure of the school's efficacy. It quantifies the impact of a school's culture and teachers and institutional support mechanisms. Tulane, given the qualifications of the students that it admits, ought to have a graduation of 87%. Its actual 2009 graduation rate was 73%. That shortfall suggests that something is amiss at Tulane. Another common statistic for measuring college quality is student selectivity. This reflects variables at how many of a college's freshmen were in the top 10% of their high school class, how their SAT scores were, and what percent of a college admits. So I'm on page 25, and it was talking about that student selectivity and the quality of the college. What strikes me about this is they're really looking at how excellent the students are before they are ever admitted. And so how does that really show how quality a school is if, if they take people that are already at the top of their game. Uh, last paragraph right before the first, this uh, it says how high their SAT scores were and what percentage of applicants a college admits. Selectivity quantifies how accomplished students are when they first arrive on campus. Each of these statistics matters but for very different reasons. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. What you have to think about is the reason the statistics matter, because that makes a critical difference in what that research means to you as a decision maker. As a society, we probably care more about efficacy. America's future depends on colleges that make sure the students they admit leave with an education and a degree. If you are a bright high school senior and you're thinking about your future, though, you may well care more about selectivity because that relates to the prestige of your degree. But no institution can excel at both. The nat National University that ranks number one in selectivity is Yale. A crucial part of what it considers its educational function is to assemble the most gifted group of freshmen it can. 
because it maximizes selectivity, though, Yale will never do well on an efficacy scale. Its freshmen are so accomplished that they have a predicted graduation of 96%. The highest Yale's efficacy score could be is plus four. It's actually plus two. Of the top 50 national universities in the best colleges ranking, the least success selective school is Penn State. Penn State sees its educational function as serving a wide range of students. That gives it the opportunity to excel at efficacy, and it does so brilliantly. Penn State's freshmen have an expected graduation of 73% and an actual graduation rate of 85% for a score of plus 12. No other school in the U.S. News Top 50 comes close. There's no right answer to how much weight a ranking system should give to these two competing values. It's a matter of which educational model you value more. And here, once again, U.S. News makes its position clear. It gives twice as much rate to selectivity as it does to efficacy. It favors the Yale model over the Penn State model, which means that the Yales of the world will always succeed at the U.S. News rankings because the U.S. News ranking system is designed to reward Yaleness. By contrast, to the extent that Penn State succeeds at doing a better job of being Penn State, of attracting a diverse group of students and educating them capably, it will only do worse. Rankings are not benign. They enshrine very particular ideologies, and at a time when American higher education is facing a crisis of accessibility and affordability, we have adopted a de facto standard of college quality that is uninterested in both of those factors. And why? Because a group of magazine analysts in an office building in Washington, D.C. decided 20 years ago to value selectivity over efficacy? To use proxies that scarcely relate to what they're meant to be proxies for? And to pretend that they can compare a large, diverse, low-cost land-grant university in rural Pennsylvania with a small, expensive, private Jewish university on two campuses in Manhattan? If you look at the top 20 schools every year forever, they are all wealthy, private universities, Graham Spanier, the president of Penn State, told me. Do you mean that even the most prestigious public universities in the United States, and you can take your pick of what you think they are, Berkeley, USC, UCLA, University of Michigan, University of Wisconsin, Illinois, Penn State, UNC, do you mean to say that not one of those is in the top tier of institutions? It doesn't really make sense until you drill down into the rankings. And what do you find? What I find more than anything else is a measure of wealth, institutional wealth. How big is your endowment? What percentage of alumni are donating each year? And what are your faculty salaries? How much are you spending per student? Penn State may very well be the most popular university in America, we get 115,000 applications a year for admission. We serve a lot of people. Nearly a third of them are the first people in their entire family network to come to college. We have 76% of our students receiving financial aid. There is no possibility that we could do anything here at this university to get ourselves into the top 10 or 20 or 30, except if some donor gave us billions of dollars. I'll pause here to say this sentence, what he says here, what I find more than anything else is a measure of wealth. When you dig down and you look at the variables, it tells a completely different story about what the researchers valued. It's very important for you to understand what those things are. In the fall of 1913, 
the prominent American geographer Ellsworth Huntington sent a letter to 213 scholars from 27 countries. May I ask your cooperation in the preparation of a map showing the distribution of the higher elements of civilization throughout the world? Huntington began, and he continued, My purpose is to prepare a map which shall show the distribution of those characteristics which are generally recognized as the highest value. I mean by this the power of initiative, the capacity for formulating new ideas and for carrying them into effect, the power of self-control, high standards of honesty and morality, the power to lead and to control other races, the capacity for disseminating ideas and other similar qualities which will readily suggest themselves. Each contributor was given a list of 185 of the world's regions, ranging from the Amur district of Siberia to the Kalahari Desert, with instructions to give each region a score of 1 to 10. The scores would then be summed and converted to a scale of 1 to 100. The rules were strict. The past could not be considered. Greece could not be given credit for its ancient glories. If two races inhabit a given region, Huntington specified further, both must be considered, and the rank of the region must depend upon the average of the two. The reputation of immigrants could be used toward the score of their country of origin, but only those of the first generation. And size and commercial significance should be held consistent. The Scots should not suffer relative to, say, the English, just because they were less populous. Huntington's respondents took on the task with the utmost seriousness. One appreciates what a big world this is and how little one knows about it when he attempts such tasks as you have set. A respondent wrote back to Huntington, It is a most excellent means of taking the concert. Oh, the conceit out of one. It is a most excellent means of taking the conceit out of one. England and Wales and the North Atlantic states of America scored a perfect hundred, with Central and Northwestern Germany and New England coming in at 93. Huntington then requested from 25 of his correspondents who were Americans an in-depth ranking of the constituent rankings of the United States. This time, he proposed a six-point scale. Southern Alaska, in this second reckoning, was last at 1.5, followed by Arizona and New Mexico at 1.6. The winners, Massachusetts at 6, followed by Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New York at 5.8. The citadel of American civilization was New England and New York. Huntington concluded in his magisterial 1915 work, Civilization and Climate. In case you are wondering, Ellsworth Huntington was a professor of geography at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut. Civilization and Climate was published by Yale University Press, and the book's appendix contains a list of Huntington's American correspondence, of which the following bear special mention. J. Barrell, a geologist from New Haven, Connecticut. P. Bigelow, traveler and author from Malden, New York. I. Bowman, geographer, New York City. W. M. Brown, geographer, Providence, Rhode Island. A. C. Coolidge, historian, Cambridge, Massachusetts. S. W. Cushing, geographer, Salem, Massachusetts. J. Ferrand, anthropologist, New York City. I'm going to pause here. One of the things you should also be able to do as somebody who is a good thinker and evaluator of research findings is to be able to see patterns. At this point, you should be noticing a pattern in where these people are from and what they do. Um, let's see. S.W. Cushing, geographer, Salem, Massachusetts. L. Ferrand, anthropologist, New York City. C.W. Furlong, traveler and author, Boston, Massachusetts. E.W. Griffiths, traveler and author, Ithaca, New York. A.G. Keller, anthropologist, 
New Haven, Connecticut. E.F. Miriam, Editor, Boston, Massachusetts. J.R. Smith, Economic Geographer, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Anonymous of New York City. In spite of several attempts, I was unable to obtain any contributor in the states west of Minnesota or the south of the Ohio River, Huntington explains, as if it were a side issue. It isn't, of course. Not then and not now. Who comes out on top in any ranking system is really about who is doing the ranking. <laughs>